0: Hello everyone and welcome to the TMA's Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled Understanding Acute Flaccid Myelitis. We are a nonprofit focused on support, education and research of rare neuroimmune disorder diseases. We can learn more about you can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. This podcast is made possible in part through the generous support of Alexion Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Alexion Pharmaceuticals is a global biopharmaceutical company focused on serving patients with severe and rare disorders through the innovation, development, and commercialization of life-transforming therapeutic products. Their goal is to deliver medical breakthroughs where none currently exist. It's driven by the knowledge that people's lives depend on their work. This podcast today is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download via iTunes. During the call, <clears throat> if you have any additional questions, you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Trisha Plum, who will be moderating this podcast. Trisha is a senior research nurse for the neuroimmunology team at UT Southwestern. She graduated with her bachelor's and master's of science in nursing from the University of Oklahoma with an emphasis on acute care for pediatrics and adults. She moved to Dallas specifically to be involved in clinical research for the pediatric population. In December, 2013, she joined the UT Southwestern Neuroimmunology team. She educates nursing staff, patients, families on the value of research along with coordinating various research studies highlighting pediatric demyelinating disorders. She completed her certification in rare neuroimmunologic disorders in July 2015. So thank you, Tricia, for moderating today.
1: Thank you, Erin. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you to the TMA for giving me the opportunity. And I would like to introduce you to Drs. Benjamin Greenberg and Karen McCain. Dr. Greenberg received his bachelor's of arts degree from the Johns Hopkins University and his master's degree in molecular microbiology and immunology from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health in Baltimore, Maryland. He attended medical school at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Then he completed an internship in in medicine at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, before going to his residency in neurology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. He then joined the faculty within the Division of Neuroimmunology at Hopkins and became the co-director of the Transverse Myelitis Center and director of the Encephalitis Center. In January of 2009, he was recruited to the faculty at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, where he founded and directed the Transverse Myelitis and Neuromyelitis Optical Program. That same year, He established the Pediatric Conquer Program at Children's Health Dallas. He splits his clinical time between seeing both adult and pediatric patients. His research interests are in both the diagnosis and treatment of transverse myelitis, neuromyelitis optica, encephalitis, multiple sclerosis, and infections of the nervous system. He is actively involved in developing better ways to diagnose and prognosticate for patients with these disorders. He also coordinates trials that have studied new treatments to prevent neurologic damage and restore function to those who have already been affected. And also we have Karen McCain, PT, GPT, NCS. She is an associate professor of the School of Health Professions as well as an associate director of the David M. Crowley Research and Rehabilitation Laboratory at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical College in Dallas, Texas. In addition, she is a director of the Neurologic Residency Program at UT Southwestern. Karen received her bachelor's in physical therapy from UT Southwestern in 1992 and a doctorate in physical therapy from Regis University in 2006. Dr. McCain is board certified by the American Physical Therapy Association as a neurologic clinical specialist. She has been teaching at the university level since 1998 and currently teaches in a DPT program. Dr. McCain maintains a clinical practice with a focus on gait recovery in persons with neurologic injuries. In addition, she actively conducts research in areas of gait recovery after stroke, as well as the impact of arthrosis on gait in persons with neurological diagnosis. Dr. McCain, is the principal investigator of an ongoing clinical trial of early stand- standardized task specific training or ESTT, in persons recovering from stroke and has published several papers related to this research welcome and thank you both for joining us today we have a lot of questions from the community and we will really try to get to as many of them as possible so how about, well, let's just start out with the most, the first question I hear from most of the patients and families. Dr. Greenberg, what is acute flaccid myelitis?
2: So, Tricia, first let me say thank you to you for moderating and the Transverse Myelitis Association and sponsors for making these podcasts uh, possible. I think they're a great tool for communicating with our uh, community, not just educating but hearing the questions that are out there. And the one that you start with, uh, you're right, is one we get on a regular basis. Acute flaccid myelitis, Uh, the term uh, was coined uh, for this condition two years ago in 2014. And essentially, this is a condition where there is an infection, inflammation, or both of the spinal cord leading to a specific pattern of weakness. So your spinal cord is the conduit of information between your brain and your body. And when we're talking about Movement, when we're talking about the ability to move arms, and legs, there are several parts to that circuitry, but the two most important are a neuron, or if you like to imagine a wire, going from your brain down into your spinal cord and connecting to a second wire that goes from your spinal cord to the muscle. In the setting of acute flaccid myelitis, there can be damage to either of these wires, but the preponderance of damage is to the second wire, going from the spinal cord to the muscle. The pattern of weakness we see when that wire is damaged is different than the pattern of weakness we see when the first wire is damaged. So when we are treating patients with transverse myelitis, where there is damage to the spinal cord, what we now do is determine which of the variants they have. And acute flaccid myelitis is a variant where that wire number two receives the majority of the damage. And people can have loose, floppy, flaccid muscles instead of the tight muscles we tend to see when wire number one is damaged. Okay,
1: fantastic. So one of the other questions that we received is what are the differences in white matter and gray matter being affected? And are those significant differences in recovery or diagnosis?
2: So the differentiation between white and gray matter is the pathologic term, the technical term we use to separate out wire number one and wire number two. So when we look at the spinal cord, the white matter houses the wire number one, the wire that's going from the brain to the spinal cord. And the gray matter is the very start of wire number two, which is the wire going from the spinal cord out to the muscle. So when we talk about white matter and gray matter damage, we're talking about the difference between wire number one and wire number two. And when you do cause damage to the white matter, wire number one, the weakness we get tends to come with those tight muscles that I described, the brisk reflexes when a physician taps on on a tendon and, and a, a joint, there's a jerk of an arm or a leg, those reflexes tend to be brisk, whereas when wire number two or the gray matter is damaged, the muscles tend to be loose, floppy, flaccid. There tends to be very quick atrophy of the muscles. They tend to get small. The reflexes tend to be reduced. And so the pattern of weakness we see and then ultimately the rehabilitation techniques that we'll talk about in a moment that we do tend to be different when talking about white matter versus gray matter damage.
1: Okay, thank you. I know I'm, I'm glad we're recording this because I know I'm going to have to go back and listen to it over and over. That was a lot of great information. And so I know a lot of things that, that we get asked about is what are the causes and... Yeah. Yeah, what is the thinking on how the suspected virus attacked the spinal cord? Is it the virus itself attacking, or is this more of an autoimmune reaction?
2: So that is the proverbial $64,000 question, and the honest answer is we don't yet know. There is evidence to suggest that this is a direct viral infection of the spinal cord, there is evidence to say that this is a viral infection of the spinal cord that then elicits an immune response that causes damage and there is evidence to say that there is a viral infection that triggers an immune response to subsequently damage the spinal cord now it's a very important question to answer because that will dictate the therapy and to be honest at this point we don't know we we don't know for sure but we do have evidence in a number of children that with or without viral infection, the immune system is playing a role. We just don't know to what degree. So when treating patients with acute flaccid myelitis, uh, clinicians and families are put in the situation of having to make decisions about treatment with incomplete information.
1: Okay. Which brings us to a question we had about treatments, is how how do we treat? acute flaccid myelitis, what are the potential treatment options realistic for flaccid myelitis and transverse myelitis?
2: So in the setting of traditional transverse myelitis, where the data overwhelmingly supports that it is a pure immune-mediated event, all of the acute therapy is focused on bringing down inflammation. In the setting of acute flaccid myelitis, we have to make a case decision based on MRI, and spinal fluid, how much of a suspicion do we have that the, an overactive immune system is causing damage? If indeed we convince ourselves that in that individual case, the immune system is activated in a way it shouldn't be, then we use the traditional therapies that we use in transverse myelitis, specifically steroids, IVIG, plasma exchange, this use has been extremely controversial in acute plastic myelitis, and indeed, the Centers for Disease Control uh, have recommended not using some of those therapies. But when we look at our experiences and the limited data we have, there are some patients who seem to be getting better in the context of those therapies. So we are left at a bit of an impasse in the acute setting, trying to decide whether or not we should use the traditional therapies used in transverse myelitis for patients, particularly children with acute plastic myelitis. At our center here at Children's Health in Dallas and UT Southwestern, we have been approaching this on a case-by-case basis uh, to try and decide, given the totality of information we have about any given patient, should we use any or all of those measures in the setting of acute inflammation. Now, once you're outside the acute set, What is not, in my opinion, being focused on enough nationally is the options from a rehabilitation perspective. Because regardless of the mechanism of injury, whether it's wire number one or wire number two, there are things that should be done to start promoting the restoration of function. And while we may not know for sure if it was a virus or the immune system that caused the damage, once the damage is there. There are a lot of things that should be done to help the body recover, and so even if we never sort out whether it's a virus or the immune system, and I think we will sort it out, but even if we were never to sort it out, it wouldn't prevent us from developing therapies to deal with the damage once it's done.
1: Okay, so speaking of a little bit of rehabilitation, Dr. McCain, what role does rehab play in acute flaccid myelitis?
3: Well, like Dr. Greenberg hinted, rehabilitation is a huge role because when you've got this abrupt onset of profound weakness, the first thing that you need to do is to after after you're out of that very acute issue and you've you know you're medically stable, as determined by the physician, we need to get the patient up and see what's see what still moves, basically, see what the weakness pattern is and begin to try to restore function. Um, and, and you know if you follow the, these cases that the function varies widely. Some patients have a little bit of movement, some patients have no movement, some patients have almost full movement. But the role of the physical therapist and the occupational therapist and speech therapy, where the, the role is to get you up and get you as, into a functional position and see what you can do. So we're, we're trying to restore function from the very beginning. So that means getting you up into sitting, maybe standing if you're able, and and my expertise, which is in gait, which is to try to restore gait, try to get you
1: walking again.
3: So it's to it's to try to restore you to a, as normal a function as you can
1: possibly get. Okay, and so I know that it can just it just takes lots of intensive therapies and lots of time, but I do believe that we do see um, we do see growth and we do see healing. And so I am, I'm wondering if some of the families out there are wondering if there are any specific therapies that they should, that they should look for. So I think there are a couple
3: of things that you, that you touched on there. The first thing is, is that, that what, what I'm looking to promote when I'm treating patients is I'm looking for function. So the therapies that are directed towards functional things are really what's the most important. So I personally spend a lot less time on exercise, per se, as I do on function. So functional activity, sitting, standing, walking, functional positions. I don't do a lot in supine. I don't do a lot laying down on my back. I like the patients in a sitting position or a standing position. But the other thing that you really hinted on is what we know from the motor learning literature is that learning takes repetition. And learning in your brain, learning in your spinal cord takes repetition and, and it's not gonna happen if you don't do really what we know from the literature is thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions. So sometimes I think what we see is that, that people give up a little bit too soon. They don't get the amount of repetition that they need for learning to actually take place. Um, and when you're, when you're dealing with the kind of situation that Dr. Greenberg outlined, which is where that, that second nerve is impaired, um, we don't really know how many, how many nerves are, are innervating the muscles that we're dealing with. So we've probably got really profoundly weak muscles. So we're having muscles that are having to do more than their fair share. So it takes a long time to get those muscles strong enough to be able to do the workload. So it takes time. It takes a lot of time and persistence and patience and the role of the therapist is to not only do the right therapy but then provide the right kind of support. It might be a walker. It might be the right kind of seating. It might be the right kind of bracing for the legs, you know, all kinds of things. But that, again, is the role of the therapist to provide those things.
1: Okay. Are you yeah.
3: seeing...
2: If oh,
1: I'm I, sorry. If Go ahead, Dr. Lunger.
2: If, if I could just add a, a comment that there are two words that I hone in on, uh, Karen, as you're speaking, and I, I really want to underscore them for everyone because it I think it starts to be a theme, early and repetition, and I I think the two most classic mistakes we are making in the setting of AFM or the traditional TM uh, that we see in patients is we don't start rehab early enough, even the most basic of interventions when somebody is still in the hospital early intervention, the earlier the better, and, and you're running a study of this on, on stroke right now, but I think the same paradigm applies to our spinal cord patients, and then the repetition, and I, I think um, sometimes it's, it's families, but often it's uh, healthcare systems or even sometimes therapists who are signing off too soon or accepting an outcome too soon and not recognize not just the, the global length of time, but the frequency of events that need to occur to coax a nervous system to repair. Right? Some patients will ask me, is it better to do three hours a day, twice a week, or 20 minutes every single day of the week? And I always go for the repetition, as much as we can safely do to help, but without days of breaks in between, and, and I tell my patients, and I'm curious about your thoughts, that you do, not, you do not get better by going to therapy, you get better by doing therapy, and that can happen with or without a physical therapist hovering over you.
3: Oh, I could not agree more. What, what we tell our patients, in fact, is that therapy really happens at home. The job of the therapist is to, is to structure things, so my job is to get you the tools you need to give you the things to do. I need to see you for the skilled things. I need to help you with the movements that you need, with the equipment that you need. But you need to be doing the things at home that we're doing in therapy. You need to be following up because exactly what you're saying is, right, the amount of repetition that you're going to need to be able to do to, do, to, to get motor learning is exponentially more than, than you could ever do in a therapy session. So 100% agree. It's the amount, not only is it the amount, but it's that intensity. You can't do it twice a week and think that anything's going to happen. It's, it's thousands of repetitions. So it has to be carried over at home, what we're
1: doing in therapy. Couldn't agree more. Okay. Fantastic. I know that is one of the one of the questions that we see over and over is access to access to therapies, there, there are some of our, our families who are more rural and some of them are, are not, but there all seems to be, there seems to be some barriers at some point, point. and do you guys have any suggestions on how they, can, how they can work with, should they work with a case manager, should they work with their physician to make sure that they, their therapies are not dropped?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I, w- I would love, uh, we-, we can dedicate an entire hour podcast to <laughs> navigating the healthcare system to get access to resources that are medically appropriate. That's a really long, nerdy title for a very important subject. And I can impart uh, to families who are listening now or in the future some of the key things we recommend. So, number one is starting from the notion. Uh, that, that Dr. McCain just espoused uh, quite eloquently the, the what I call you don't get better by going to therapy, you get better by doing therapy, and what she described as the role of the therapist is to be the sherpa, the guide, the coach, but all Olympic athletes do training when their coach isn't around, but they do it the way their coach told them. And so when looking at the resources for therapists, it is actually not as important to have immediate daily or weekly access to a therapist. It's important to have intermittent access to the right therapist who can guide you. And So I would almost rather see my patients have short periods of time spread out over the year with a therapist checking their current exam, their function, and tweaking their home program Then to do six weeks of intensive rehab only to go back to life as usual after that event. So you have to be savvy about the insurance side of things to know that on pretty much all insurance policies these days, there is a limit to the number of outpatient therapy days that anybody can get. You can negotiate with your insurance to see if you can get more. You are best suited to negotiate if you are assigned a case manager from the insurance, somebody you can talk to on a regular basis, and you can ask your insurance company to assign a case manager to your case. If you have a therapist, physiatrist, neurologist, any and all of whom are advocating for your continued therapy through letters or peer-to-peer conversations, and then you strategically use those benefits, spread out over a year to maintain a consistent approach, but trying to get more benefits and, and decrease the obstacles, there has to be some engagement uh, with our third-party payers. And then we encourage people to use whatever limited resources there are in a rationed manner spread out over the year to get the biggest bang for your buck. And, and I'll, I'll make one other comment, and then I'm Karen, I'll, I'll turn this to you. One of the things insurance companies look for, from my understanding, when people are undergoing therapy, particularly inpatient therapy, but also outpatient, is that there is continued measurable progress. And at a point when people, therapists or doctors, uh, document a lack of progress from week to week, insurance companies tend to say, we are not going to approve further therapy. The trick with acute plastic myelitis is for a lot of our patients, the improvement is happening over such a long period of time at a slower rate that if you take too short a segment, it will look as though people have plateaued, when in reality, they're just moving slowly. So I encourage uh, patients and therapists to think about spreading out those visits so they don't artificially report the fact that somebody isn't going to benefit from therapy. Um, Karen, I don't know if you've run into this situation or found ways to handle it, but this is a, a common theme we hear in the clinic.
3: No, I think you're 100% correct because, um, because as as you know from my intro, I primarily treat adults, and we treat adults with chronic progressive disorders, Parkinson's, MS, other things. We have the same issue because we have patients that have progressive disorders, and we have to write goals <laughs> while we're treating patients that have progressive disorders. So we have the same challenge, a slightly different side of the coin, but the same issue. So we have to write goals that the patient is going to meet, even though they have a progressive disorder. So it, you're right, you have, to, you have to space out the visits, you have to write the goals so that they're achievable. So you need to, you need to be savvy on how, how to write goals. You need to set your goals that A, the patient can achieve them, and B, you set timeframes that are reasonable. And, and like you say, space them out, and you have, to, you have to hold your patients accountable. You have to expect that the patient is gonna do what you ask them to do at home. We have patients, we give them exercise grids, and we expect them to fill them out, and bring them back and show us what they've been doing at home. Because if they're not gonna you know, do, do the routine at home, then the changes aren't gonna be made. So it's, you know, it's a cooperative thing, it's a, it's a team sport. Therapy's a team sport. I'll do my part, but you have to do yours. And, and like you said, you write your goals in a way that they are achievable in, in reasonable time frames. And, and I agree with you. You do need an advocate. We write letters all the time to insurance companies asking for more therapy and explain why. We explain how the patient is slowly achieving those goals. They're not, we're not moving at the you know, speed of light, but we are slowly achieving those goals. So it, it does take experience, and it takes a little bit of savvy to know how to write those goals so that the patient doesn't appear to have plateaued.
1: Fantastic, thank you both. Um, we've had a few questions. This is this is more highlighting. Uh, they are younger patients. It is. Can you guys think of of so? Quite a few of of our patients are under the age of two years old, and so getting them to eat. Dinner sometimes is a challenge, <laughs> but can you think of a way, or can you think of any anything to suggest is, is like chiropractic care okay for children one to two years old, or is can you is acupuncture or any supplements, or can you suggest anything for our younger populations?
2: Oh, you want to take that, Ben? Well, there's a lot baked into that question. That was not a lot. I'm going to break that down a little bit. Let's just start <laughs> in general um, with our patients who are uh, toddlers or infants. Um, when it comes to the rehabilitation, yes, the uh, approaches are different. And there's two aspects. One is just the age. Um, Therapists who work with children that young and even a little older uh, have to be skilled in how to turn therapy into a game, uh, mm-hmm. because as anyone who works with children or has children know, um, it, you can't have it be a battle. You have to have therapy be something that they look forward to. I will also say that depending on the age of the child, especially in the, the toddlers all the way from grade school. We always recommend that after the initial sessions, parents leave the room for long periods of time during therapy, because children will do better working with their therapist without mom or dad around, and then mom or dad should come in at the end. It, it is hard for parents to do, and I'm speaking as a father, uh, but it is the right thing to do. The children who have had this prior to a year of age, or I should say prior to a point that they were walking, meaning they became weak before they had learned to walk, represent a unique and challenging group Mm -hmm. of patients from a rehabilitation perspective because it isn't a skill set they had learned and lost. It's a skill set they never learned. Mm -hmm. And so what goes into the rehabilitation for that very unique group of children is is different but not impossible. We uh, have our kids who had transverse myelitis, and AFM before a year of age who are walking. It took them longer to reach those goals and they got there very differently, um, but it is definitely possible. Now on the um, holistic approach to care aspect, the use of uh, things other than prescribed medications or traditional physical therapy, things such as chiropractor, chiropractic manipulation or acupuncture, Uh, I'll begin by saying, at our center, we embrace all of it. Um, We feel as though there are multiple ways that people can improve. They are not mutually exclusive, but depending on the age and the expertise of the practitioner, we may or may not recommend it. So, for example, in the world of acupuncture, uh, I am personally a believer that there are some patients who will get a benefit from acupuncture. I cannot tell you which ones yet, and I cannot tell you the degree. But in general, as long as it is occurring with a light, then I do not have reservations around acupuncture. Chiropractic manipulation is a little different. It is something I am uh, not fundamentally against in any way, shape, or form. I think there are some myths that uh, those of us with an MD after our name are somehow against chiropractic medicine. Uh, Most of us are not. Uh, There are certain limits. Uh, that we would like to see. We are not a huge fan of rapid neck manipulations, and for any chiropractors working with our um, kids who have uh, patterns of weakness or asymmetric patterns of weakness, that practitioner really needs to be comfortable with the neuromuscular population. These kids are different, very different, than children coming in with sports-related injuries or strains. And so there needs to be a very honest and open conversation with the practitioner before manipulations occur um, around what their experience level is. It is possible to do harm in all of these things. It is possible to do harm in physical therapy. Um, And so the practitioner's level of experience uh, is important and should be discussed. But that is on a case-by-case basis. And then finally, you asked about supplements. In general, there are some supplements that we have data to suggest uh, are safe, of essentially little to no data on efficacy, but we are definitely interested in developing those. So we will have patients who are taking vitamin D supplementation if their vitamin D is low. We will have patients who take fish oil, uh, omega-3 fatty acids, some on alpha-lipoic acid, things where we have a degree of data Suggest safety, uh, but it is hard to advertise efficacy without the data. And Karen, I don't know if you have had experience with your patients on the acupuncture or chiropractic side of things, and if you'd want to edit or add to it. Now, the
3: only the only comment I would have, um, I, I would agree with your thoughts on chiropractic. Chiropractic in that age group makes me a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit nervous. Uh, I think again you'd have to be uh, you'd have to have a lot of confidence in the practitioner and again, I would caution with respect to the neck. Um, my my comments about the walking um, I agree with you. We just saw a kiddo in clinic um, the other day who who was just beginning to walk uh, at the time that he got sick. Uh, I think that when you're training kiddos who are not walking before they got sick, I think you have to really um, I think you have to be careful in that population. Certainly, those children can can learn how to walk, but I think you really need a skilled practitioner to really to to facilitate typical walking in those kiddos. I think it's a really critical skill, and I think you need to be careful about how you do it because that, because that motor learning is such a critical skill that you want to make sure that you do it right uh, because as as you're learning, motor learning is a skill. And motor learning can be either good or it can be bad. You can learn what we call maladaptive behaviors or less than typical behaviors. Uh, and we really want to facilitate, when you're, when you're talking about walking, we want that child to relearn as close to typical walking as possible. So it's one of those skills that's really important. Um, so so when, you, when, you go to, when you get to that level, it's important to have a therapist who's really skilled.
1: Fantastic. So one of the the questions we had was about electrical stimulation. Can you talk a little bit about what it is and what we're trying to achieve?
3: Well, Dr. Greenberg and I are both really big fans of electrical stimulation. We use it a lot. I use it a lot in my adult patients uh, and I like to use it in pediatric patients. And I've used it lots with pediatric patients with really very, very good success. You have to be a little bit cautious with kiddos because you have to be able to make sure that they can tolerate the stimulus and that they understand what it is. Um, Now, in acute flaccid myelitis, sometimes